Good day to you denizens of the interweb and welcome back to another episode of the Wonky Cast. On this week's show I am chatting with author and games designer Mark Brendan. Uh, now for those of you that know Mark and I you'll know that we've known each other for, uh, for let's say quite some time. Uh, those of you who do know us will get that joke, those of you who don't I apologise. Uh, but you can always ask us and, and we'll tell you how we know each other and it'll be amusing. Well it won't but it is. But it isn't. Oh, who knows. Check out the show notes for links to Mark's work and his uh, recent novel. Apologies that there hasn't been a new wonky cast for a while now. Uh, unfortunately, we've been a little bit busy over summer. Uh, hopefully we'll be back on track now and back on schedule with weekly, weekly podcasts from now on. Keep an eye out on the site as well. There's loads of new reviews of uh, TV, etc. going up now as we're into the, the fall season of the TV schedule. And we're trying to cover something ridiculous, like about 20 shows that we're trying to cover this year in terms of reviewing. So uh, go and have a look, check it out, and uh, yeah, let us know what you think. At some point during the conversation, after I've said we're rolling. Mm. Oh yeah. <laughs> okay. Cool. Well, the new novel uh, which I've just uh, published on Amazon Kindle and uh, on CreateSpace as well, if you want the, the the print version of it, is called Son of Mars. And it's about this young fella called Ares Alexander, who is the first person uh, born on on the Martian colony in the early 22nd century. Now, it's kind of a, a, a usual science, like near future science fiction background to that is that the, the Earth is bollocksed and mm -hmm. uh, people want to get off planet and go and live in this new colony. Yeah. Uh, begins with a bit of background to it. It begins with uh, with a war that, that occurs between the uh, the colonists and refugees fleeing from Earth because the first thing that happens, of course, is um, once the, the atmosphere is established on Mars, all of Earth's most richest and powerful people get up there first and then try to close the door behind them because they don't want this influx of, uh, of other people coming. So when this uh, huge city-sized Earthship with a million colonists... Uh, arrives unannounced, they shoot it down, mm -hmm. uh, and it crash lands in the Hellas Sea, um, on uh, on the other side of the planet from the from the colony that they're on. But most of the people survive this, and uh, of course a war occurs, and eventually the uh, the elites in the in the city of Martiangrad, which is the original colony, win this war using their drone warfare against the uh, the hundreds of thousands of colonists who are uh, essentially sort of, you know, a ragtag band of, of freedom fighters. Sure. Uh, they're then forced to submit to humiliating surrender terms, but they're allowed to establish their sister colony uh, on the Hellas Sea. So then after that, we, we fast forward um, 15 years or so, and Ares, who was a baby at the time of the, the war, He's now growing up. He's uh, he's you know a seventeen year old lad just kind of going about his business in Martiangrad, and he begins to notice that uh, machines start acting oddly around him through a series of uh, uh, precipitating events, and he learns that uh, he's got the he's got the capacity to actually control 
uh, neural net machines, which are an upgrade that the, the Martians have created on normal AI drones, which have got organic brains in them. Okay. And he can communicate with, with these things, and uh, he gets involved in a number of shenanigans as uh, a second uprising starts to occur on the planet, uh, as the people of Hellasport, the, the refugees, aren't going to take it anymore with the... Uh, the, the oppression and the, the surrender terms that they're forced to endure from Martian grad. Sure. So second war breaks out and uh, Ares, of course, gets involved with, uh, with both factions here because through his ability to control essentially legions of, uh, of neural net tanks and, and other ordnance uh, has the ability to sway this battle one way or another. And uh, it's, yeah, the, the, the the book is basically about him learning to control this ability, coming to terms with it, and uh, and getting involved in it and in the uh, the conflict here. Okay, I mean, it, it sounds the kind of the, the prologue, as you describe, well, the kind of first war sounds it, it kind of it, it sounds a little similar to Elysium, the Neil Blomkamp. Have you seen that film? Sort of, yeah. I mean, the, uh, yeah, I certainly haven't invented anything new with this. These are, like, quite familiar sci-fi tropes. What I wanted to do with it, actually, is um, once we get to that point, um, it's, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of um, action and fun and games in it. If you're into, like, sort of big sci-fi tank battles and weapons porn, mm-hmm. a la, like, sort of Appleseed and, and Ghost yeah. in the Shell, yeah. you know, you'll, you'll like this sort of thing. It's got that sort of action in it. But on the more serious side of it as well, I wanted to go into a bit about... Um, what happens in revolutionary politics is, you know, what happens afterwards, like after after the dust has settled, is, yeah. is, it, is it ever possible to uh, to rebuild and reinvent a yeah, society? That, that, that's kind of be- yeah, that's kind of where I was going to go with it. Is is yeah. kind of yeah, while it does have that kind of Elysium thing, this this is kind of the the what happens after, and it seems to be taking a a, a different line to a lot of sci-fi in that it's uh, it's incorporating. The kind of the idea of you know, uh, psionic powers and that kind of thing, as well as kind of pure sci-fi. Yeah, uh, actually, there's, there's. I mean, the the psionic powers, as far as that goes, it's um, it's not a Deus Ex Machina type thing. It's it, it's quite tightly integrated with the plot. Right. I don't want to give like sort of too many spoilers away. Yeah, yeah sure. There's a reason that Ares can do this, mm-hmm. uh, and all you know, it's tied into him being the firstborn person on the. On the planet to uh, to essentially engineers, uh, you know, a couple who are engineers and scientists who yeah. are part of the terraforming team. What one of the kind of key things that, that I think about sci-fi like this is that is the kind of well, it's the thing I find the most fun, and I don't know whether this is something you spend a lot of time on, which is the kind of world-building aspect of it. I certainly do. I mean, world-building something that for quite a long time had a, a you know a bit of a dirty was a bit of a dirty word had a, a poor reputation. I think particularly throughout the end of the 90s and in the noughties, everything was focused on being character-based mm. and almost to the exclusion of all else, to the extent that I think world-building became something that was regarded as a, you know, a, as a, a sort of throwaway thing compared to, you know, the, the real meat of, like, character-based fiction. Now, yeah. I, I happen to disagree with that. I think the world itself should be a character and it should be every bit as well thought out and designed as any of the characters that are in your story are. Totally. I mean, I think certainly from my perspective, I always tend to kind of think about what is in the universe before approaching what the story is. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I've got you that. You know, I, I, I tend to think in, in big picture terms. I mean, I come from a, a game design background, yeah, so this, there's this, 
Yeah, this, this is what I was going to say. Is, is, that involved. Yeah. Do, do you think that comes from uh, the, the kind of background in role-playing games and, and computer games design? Is that, is that kind of where that, that, that mindset comes from? Definitely, because these are interactive media, so people have got to buy into the environment that they're in. You, you can't, you can't, they, they've, they've got to interact, and most, most of like what they do in those environments is through actions and acting on the environment. So the environment has got to work. It's got to be a, it's got to be a believable thing and a believable immersive character. Uh, you, it's very difficult to, to lead people through that just on, on watching dialogue, which is what you get in more traditional media like the novel and, and like movies they're they're passive so you can kind of get away with that in them but in uh in games no you you've got to you've got to be keeping the interest they've got to be able to explore and you know pick things up yeah and, like, can you talk a bit about some of the some of the games that you that you have worked on yeah sure i mean uh my, i started off on on tabletop games i started off with you know the mighty games workshop mm. um i would my first uh, my first job was in the games industry was writing on White Dwarf, which involved mostly writing articles, which you know you remember sort of White Dwarf's format. Yep, there's, there's quite a lot that allows you to do just like little expanded universe type things with by adding scenarios and adding you know maybe new troop types and new types of equipment just via via the magazine. So that kind of gave me the taste for it. On that, um, after that, I, I got a job as a full time game designer at uh, one of Games Workshop's rival companies, uh, sadly no longer with us, uh, Target Games. All right, um, yeah, yeah. Some of your listeners may remember games like Warzone and, uh, and Chronopia. I'm, I'm sure 20, they will. 28-millimeter skirmish games. So there's a bit of stuff for them. It was mostly on the, on the fiction side. Um, yeah, I've kind of done uh, my, my other sort of full-time... Uh, full-blown tabletop games that I did were uh, Keltos and Void, mm. which came from a, a company that arose from the ashes of Target uh, called Icor. Mm-hmm. Um, they're still around in, in some shape or form. Uh, Keltos is owned by a company called Brigade Miniatures nowadays, but they haven't, um, they haven't done anything with it as far as I can see for a few years now. Yeah, I was gonna say, oh, uh, do you still do much of the kind of tabletop gaming now, or, or have you...? I, I, I do, yeah. Um, the uh, the the Void universe has, has spawned a few sequel games, um, spin-off games, uh, Urban War and Metropolis, namely, which were brought out by Urban Mammoth. And there's a new company now who, um, who are called Myriad Miniatures, uh, again involving some of the same key players from Target through Icor through Urban Mammoth to this, but uh, bringing out a six millimeter. Um, game set in that universe called Age of Tyrants. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometime soon, we haven't got a set date for it, but uh, but yeah, I've done the game design on that, I've done the background for it, and at some point we'll be uh, we'll be launching a Kickstarter. You can go, you can have a look at that on Facebook. Um, if you just search for Age of Tyrants on Facebook, you'll find it. We can, we can stick, the, stick the links to it in the show notes that go out with this one, so people will have it there. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and there's the... the Myriad Miniatures um, forums as well. I posted uh, posted a beta set of rules on those forums, where again, if people are interested, they can they can have a look and let us know what they think of them. Yeah. There's an opportunity to make tweaks based on feedback before we actually, you know, get it all finished and the cool. the T's crossed and the I's dotted cool. and it goes to Kickstarter. I, I, I guess I think at the moment I've seen a bit of a resurgence in kind of tabletop gaming. Have you noted that at all? 
I certainly have, yeah. I mean, board games are much more popular than they used to be. Uh, tabletop games have had a bit of a bounce on the back of that. Not as significant, I think, as the board games thing, but mm. yeah, board games are really taking off. Yeah, Something yeah. I'm looking at myself, I want to do um, with you know, set the, the whole self-publishing thing, uh, print-on-demand services for board games are, uh, are reaching a, a stage of maturity now where for absolutely no upfront outlay except your own time, you can create your own board games and yeah. you know, promote them yourself. So, uh, you know, I might take a look at that. It, um, it cuts out the whole sort of working with teams yeah. type idea, which, like, you know... Yeah. It's it's the whole DIY thing. I mean that that, that again as an yeah, approach yeah. to creating stuff has become massively popular now. Uh, I, I had a, uh, a guy on the show a couple of weeks ago from a band called Maybe She Will. I don't know if you've heard of them. They're a kind of post rock uh, okay. instrumental yeah. band. Uh, and you again, have, they, you have to fire me a link. I, I will do. Yeah, they, they, they very much go down the route of of DIY, and quite a lot of people I've had on the show they either do stuff through Kickstarter or they've just kind of built it up on their own from a small thing and self published and then it's all grown up so I, I think that there seems to be a lot more a lot more tools out there that allow people to do this now there certainly are and i think it's you know it, it seems to be the future i mean big publishers um take note uh you know i think they're gonna have to up the game to deal with this this diy thing of course uh, the there are pros and cons in weighing up whether you should go the DIY route. When I start with the, the Son of Mars novel, um, I had a contact in Penguin mm-hmm. uh, because of a, a previous job that I was in where um, they got involved in doing the novelization of a game that I was working on. So I knew this guy who was a commissioning editor at Penguin, and I sent him, I sent him a book, and he was, um, he was working on it, and, uh, and he liked it. So there, there was every opportunity there for me to get Son of Mars published through Penguin. But in the end, it didn't happen just through, you know, life happened, circumstances changed. Mm. He got another job and he left and he passed it on to, to somebody else. And that was the last I ever heard of it. You know, I sent emails sort of following it up. They never, they never got answered. I left it for a couple of months um, and then thought, well, you know, it's not happening. And then, then I just thought, well, okay, uh, I might as well just do this myself then. Yeah. And, you know, lo and behold, uh, I kind of went and done it on... on uh, on Amazon, so yeah, the, the 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 DIY thing, absolutely. You know, if if you if you're in a position where you can you can do it, you know. The, do you, do you, the expert. I, I guess I was going to say. I think that it's it's a conversation I've had with quite a lot of people. Is kind of is there a place for the kind of big publishers versus the DIY? Because with the DIY, you end up with a lot of stuff out there and being able to try and hone in on what is the good stuff becomes increasingly more difficult to try and separate it out. Yeah, that's 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 where you've got to balance up your, your kind of pros and cons. What a big publisher will give you is, is obviously that massive increased publicity and, and distribution channels but in return for that they, they take such a slice of the action mm. that you're left with, with hardly anything and the other you know with, with amazon um on kindle i i, I get a 70 percent royalty compare that to a, a traditional publisher yeah. getting like you know eight to ten percent yeah. royalty um however having having said that um I suppose you know the Seventy percent of of nothing if you can't manage to promote <laughs> yeah. it is, uh, is 
is not as good as eight percent of like you know a hundred thousand sales if you can get that. But I suppose the last point that I would make on that is that um, it's become increasingly, it's become even more difficult now. Those tools that make it easier to put out stuff on your own with the DIY approach have also made it easier to uh, for anybody to create stuff to send it to publishers. And now that the expectation that publishers have in terms of what you can bring to the table in terms of promoting it yourself, the thresh, the bar for that is set so high. You need to have this mass, you know, before a lot of the, Publishers will even look at a debut author now. You need to have like you know five thousand fans on yeah. Twitter and like you know loads of followers across all manner of social media. And you think yeah. to yourself, well, if I can do all that, if I've got all that in place already before they even look, you at might me, as well just what, sell what, directly to them. Bother yeah. like going with the publisher. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you've got the audience there already. You've built them. Then you just go and sell stuff to them. <laughs> absolutely. I yeah. mean, do you do a lot of uh, kind of convention circuit stuff? I'm just starting at this. In fact, you know, I've got I've got zero presence. I wrote the book first. Um, yeah, this is probably where I where I um, would like to go back and change history. Is that I wrote the book first without taking account of any um, of the promotional side of things. Mm. Uh, this was largely fueled by the the now delusional idea that Penguin was going to do all that. <laughs> right. I was going to get it published through Penguin, but then that that didn't happen. Um, so now I'm kind of sat down taking stock going, what do I do to promote this now? And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite daunting. I have to say, like, you know, I brought the book out, what, about 10 days ago or something like that. Yeah. Last week I just spent somewhere in the region of about three or four days, just solid looking through like sort of Amazon review lists and Mm. trying to find blogs and review sites. And I've just made this big spreadsheet of, uh, of email addresses and URLs of, you know, people I'm going to just try and contact to, to send out review copies and get yeah. reviews of it done. I suppose that's like, that's one of the main things is getting it reviewed yeah. as for, as for the convention circuit. Yeah. haven't even looked at that yet, but um, it's inevitably something that I'm going to, I'm going to have to do to get the word out. A... Because there's, you know, as you say, there are, there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of other people doing this, like, you know, self-published yeah. authors and in order to stand out, yeah, you, you've, You've got to put the grind in with the with the promotional side of it as well as doing the work on actually writing the writing the material. Absolutely, I find free cake helps. Free cake is yeah. awesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's we, we got we got lured in. A lie as well. Well, that's it. Yeah, we we got lured into a, a Kickstarter launch at the uh, the convention we went to over the weekend by the promise of free cake. It turned out not to be a lie. There was free cake. So it was okay. awesome. Sometimes the cake <laughs> is a truth. Indeed. Uh, uh, weirdly enough, there was, uh, there was someone there selling waistcoats, and there was the, the cool waistcoat would just have the cake is a lie written all over it. I was like, yeah. <laughs> I nearly nearly bought that, but instead I went for a Lego Batman one, which is also also awesome. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. Uh, this is the point where my brain always seizes up. Happens once in an interview, my brain just goes. Bye bye, just for a couple <laughs> of seconds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just kind of going. What, what have we covered so far? Oh, we covered that. Uh, okay. Back to uh, yeah. kind of board game. Yeah, back, back to back, back to what? Sorry, what? Back to board games and stuff for a second. Uh, sure. Yeah. Have you have you come across this idea now of the of the board game cafe? Yeah, I, I've seen that. This this seems to have grown out of you. I used to see this like so, you know, around. Around Nottingham, when I when I lived there, is people going and like sort you know playing games of Magic the Gathering and things like that in um, in 
pub beer gardens mm. and around pub tables. And at first, it's it's quite novel to to note that. Obviously, somebody's picked up on like sort of you know doing that and uh, and turned it into a, a sort of full blown thing. I suppose it's not dissimilar to like you know cyber cafes. You know. No, indeed, have, yeah. They have, I mean, they have that culture quite a lot in um, in the in the east, uh, where where all the esports are played in you know Korea and places like yeah, that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Where you know pe- people actually, rather than you know in the in the west, we have more of a culture of when we're playing online games multiplayer, we sort of sit at our own PCs yeah. or consoles uh, and do it on our own. Uh, whereas you know in in other cultures with more of that sort of cyber cafe culture people are like sort of get together you know not not as many people have like home broadband so they go out to do it and they they actually make it into a social event with other people so mm. yeah i can i can see where all that is coming from and that that fits in with like sort of, you know the resurgence of board games now as well yeah. and i think there's a big thing as well with uh, like the whole retro gaming scene is is getting massive as well and a lot of stuff is happening off the back of that such as uh, you've got the new Elite Dangerous, which is due out some point. I think that's just oh, going yeah. to beta, which I, I backed that yeah. on Kickstarter, and I can't wait for that. Um, so um, have, you, have you been playing that? I've got a few a few friends on Facebook have been playing it. I, 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 no, I didn't get the beta access. I was just, I just thought I'd wait for the the full thing to come out. So I've, I've got, got my I've got my yeah. Cobra Mark II all ready to go when it when it launches. Um, nice. Uh, and, I loved Elite. That was that was that was a. That was definitely a, a legendary formative game for me. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I'm hoping to get uh, David Braben on a show at some point in the future. Just going to try and make that work and have a chat with him oh, about it. Um, and then, uh, obviously, stuff like that. And there's the, uh, I don't know if you've heard about this, the upcoming fighting fantasy convention. I have actually, yeah. Um, actually, I've, I've got, um, I, I have an invite to that, like, sort of still sat in my uh, in, in my inbox, which I haven't, I haven't responded to yet. Um, um, the the problem for me is like we're we're planning on moving back to Blighty. Um, yeah. So we were just, just planning because you're, you're you're in was it Belfast at the moment? Uh, near Dublin actually. Dublin, um, sorry. The, the other one. The yeah. other one. Yeah. Um, I knew it was somewhere over there. <laughs> yeah. We were planning on moving at the start of September, which would have segued nice with that um, fighting fantasy convention because you know we we hope to be in by then, but we still don't uh, we still don't have a place sorted out yet. Right. So it's probably going to be. It, it's probably looking like uh, like a no at the moment, but right. um, I still live in hope, so I've still left it oh. left it unanswered at the moment. I, I shall represent for us because I'm going. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah, because it's uh, Jonathan Green who's he's been on the shows before as well. He's he's the guy who's running it, who's done the uh, the kind of biography history of fighting fantasy. You are the hero. Hmm. So, yeah, I've asked you this before, actually. Like, um, is this the same Jonathan Green who uh, does stuff for the Black Library um, for Games Workshop? Uh, I don't know whether he. Do, I, I I know he does like game books and he's done stuff with like Moshi Monsters and Doctor Who and things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And, and he writes. When Steampunk. I worked at Games Workshop, um, I I submitted a couple of short stories to the Black Library and um, they they appeared in these like sort of anthology editions called Inferno, and uh, yeah, there, there was a Jonathan Green who was who was another who was who was an author who. Had some stuff published at the same time. Just wondering if it was the same it's, guy. It's entirely possible. I shall ask him next time I see him, sir. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. Do you still uh, actually play role-playing games at all anymore? Or, or... Pen and paper RPGs, yeah. no. Um, I, I play a lot of... Well, I say I play a lot of board games. That's a massive lie, actually. I still <laughs> play board games. <laughs> um, I don't play them so often. 
But uh, but yeah, um, I think my most recent board game purchase was Pandemic. Oh right, yeah, yeah. loving that. Yeah, really good. Cool, yeah. Because I, I I think that I, I guess you don't have much time for doing LARP anymore. No, I haven't done that since. Uh, well, in fact, you were probably there the last time that I did that. <laughs> Possibly <laughs> it was Cumbria, sort of yeah. that long ago in yeah. uh, in in Whitehaven. Yeah, because that I mean. That, LARP again seems to be something that that's kind of carrying on. Um, some of it's getting bigger, some of it's getting more family friendly, and it's it seems like it was kind of our generations that did LARP, and then it's kind of still that generation doing LARP because I think nearly everybody who was doing it then is still doing it now. Kind of looks like that, yeah. Only, only we I mean, have there, we have more guys, money to spend guys on props. Are a bit younger than us, like so, you know that I've worked with that. That do it. Um, yeah. You know, there's there's guys in the late twenties and that um, mm. who are uh, who, who are into it now. It but, seems uh, like cosplay but, has become the bigger thing for people to do rather than LARP. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's a, there's some mutation of it, I suppose. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I guess I guess the distinction there between LARPers and cosplayers, I like the uh, is like the distinction between uh, people who play tabletop war games and people who just paint the miniatures. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not, I'm not coming down on one side or the other as being better. No, some, no, no. I, I so think some people like to collect and paint the miniatures. Some people like to to play the game. Yeah. And I think you know something that you might see in that in that. I know there's a Venn diagram between the two where you've got our beautifully painted armies and play with them. But I think people on the on the far side of the I play the game rather than paint and collect the miniatures mm. are quite happy to like you know just proxy anything. Yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, like Star Wars action figures and that for like you know Games Workshop demons. Mm. Um, they, they don't particularly care. Uh, mm. It's more about it's more about actually. You know the the tactics and moving the pieces on the board. I'm sure you can work uh, it around somehow. <laughs> Anyways, dude, uh, I think we'll pretty much leave it there. So, uh, <laughs> nice one, man. Thank you very much for your time, dude. I will, I will uh, edit all that together. Yeah, if you can somehow pick the bones out of that. I will. Yeah. Don't worry. It's, it's uh, I, I, I'm good at this now. <laughs> Fake fucking guns!